flesh, bone, and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Uh, please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Seems like it's been a long time since we've done this. It was Christmas when we did the last show, right before my trip. Right, and I had a little time to prepare for the new year, tidy up, go through the notes, and you got to spend some time with your family. To sit through Mother's lectures. I couldn't have been all that bad. No, only the first couple of days when she was telling me I had lost focus. Uh, The thing about the bees. Yes, you know how important the bees are in our family. But in the winter, apiaries are just sort of on hold, you know. While they hibernate? No, they're not asleep in there. They're awake, but just clustered around the queen, keeping her warm. I didn't know that. In our family, we say, or mother says, they're in there communicating about the year to come. Just the way the queen absorbs their warmth, they absorb the queen's thoughts about the future, what she sees. It... It sounds like you're bee fortune-telling. It would seem silly to you, but we listen. We put our ears to the hives on New Year's Eve to see what's in store. It actually sounds very traditional, like something out of our Christmas superstitions show. I guess so. Anyway, getting together with my cousins, aunts, and uncles, and having our little ritual, it's... Well, it can be nice, or even reassuring. Uh, Not that everyone agrees what they hear. Anyway, it's a good thing if what we hear is good. We're all hoping it'll be a good year. Well, yes, but then I come back here and, well... I thought you were happy to be back. I I was, but that first day... Yes, uh, the owl. The dead owl. Uh, I just thought it would be a kind of nice keepsake from our owl interlude, a little... Christmas present I got for myself. But you can't replace something alive with something dead. That thing on the mantle is gruesome. I'd always wanted a stuffed owl, and it will certainly be less trouble than Strix. It's just not right. At first, when I saw it, I thought Strix had returned. (laughs) Well, it's not even the same species. I realize that now, but I was confused, and it's just not right. If I died, would you just be happy to have me stuffed and put on display? I don't even know where I could have that done. Where does one order up a stuffed human being, I wonder? Where? I I mean, you're right. It's it's not done. I see that's the point. So uh, maybe we could just start the show. Where? Well, okay then. So, uh, this will be episode 125, 
Sorcery Schools of Spain. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and will have a related volume out at the start of next year. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who choose from a tantalizing array of monthly rewards, including shirts, mugs, dusty old things from the library shelves here, and access to monthly bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Listening to a scene from the 1975 Argentine film Nazareno Cruz and the Wolf, the protagonist, Nazareno, also being the wolf in question, or a werewolf, the strange audio ambience is that of a magical underworld he enters toward the climax of the film. It's a subterranean realm in which he witnesses a sort of witch's Sabbath and encounters a diabolical master of ceremonies who reveals to Nazareno his fate. This place is called a Salamanca, which is actually the name of a university town in Spain, but never mind that for now. In Latin America, this city's name came to designate any subterranean cave where witches were believed to hold their revels or were instructed by the devil. Its entrance was usually well hidden or even invisible. Some descriptions of Latin American Salamancas are less ominous, emphasizing magical gifts bestowed upon visitors, the old made young, the ugly, beautiful, and so on. The master encountered there may not exactly be the devil, but more ambivalent, as is the case in this film. And we'll return to the new world at the end of this episode, but the route will first wend its way through medieval Spain, touch on Greek mythology, the magic of Solomon, a story from 1001 Nights, and quite a number of literary references from Spain's Golden Age, all feeding into this idea of a school in Spain where sorcerers learned their craft. And all of this without once mentioning Harry Potter. Magic was long associated with other schools of advanced study, Throughout the centuries, when Aristotle defined the natural sciences, astrology was inseparable from astronomy and chemistry still in its alchemical phase, scholars were often imagined to be dabbling in the occult arts. As these studies moved from monasteries to universities in the Middle Ages, 
Some of those early centers of learning were suspected of hosting necromancers. For instance, the Italian schools of Padua and Bologna, or in France, in Orléans and Paris. But more than any of these, it was the ancient school of Salamanca in Spain that had the worldwide reputation as a center of the black arts, and this had earlier belonged to the Spanish city of Toledo, to the south. Still further south, the cities of Sevilla and Cordoba were occasionally named as homes to necromancers, the last two significantly being in Andalusia, or Andalusia, or Al-Andalus, as it was called by the medieval Moors, who ruled the entirety of Spain and Portugal for eight centuries. The Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, beginning in 711, is central to our story, as it brought to European universities previously unknown Arabic sciences and mathematics, discoveries represented in volumes filled with strange calligraphy, figures, and charts readily passing for magical texts. The same might be said of the early Kabbalistic studies vigorously pursued throughout the 12th and 13th century in the thriving Jewish quarter of Toledo. This unique synergy between the Catholic and classical heritage of Spain's Christians, the Kabbalistic, Solomonic, or purportedly Egyptian magic of the Jews, and the metaphysical and scientific systems of its Muslim population, was responsible for the country's centuries-long reputation as the center of European magic, both black and white. As the Moorish hold on Spain fell apart, the northern region of Castile rose to prominence, and its former Visigoth capital once again became the Spanish center of power, and remained so until the throne was moved to Madrid in 1561. In the 12th century, scholars from the Moorish cities of Cordoba and Granada, along with those of other European capitals, were drawn to Toledo thanks to its famous school of translators specializing in Arabic, Greek, and Hebrew texts. This scholarly renaissance naturally was associated with the occult studies, so much so that throughout Spain, Portugal, and France, magic came to be called. Literary references highlighting this prominence began to appear in the 13th century, one example occurs in the biography of a particularly interesting character, a French pirate and mercenary of the 12th century, known as Eustace the Monk. While he was an actual historic figure, he's remembered more for the flamboyant adventures attributed to him in a biography written between 1221 and 1284 by an unnamed poet from Picardy. While his early manhood was spent at a Benedictine monastery, news of his father's murder caused the young monk to abandon his devotional studies and pursue a bloody course of vengeance, one which involved black magic. Soon after leaving the monastery, Thank you. 
that Eustace is said to have studied is significant as the school of magic being underground in a sort of crypt or cave is essential to the legend we'll be looking at, not only in Toledo, but also later in Salamanca. The underground location appears again in a 1335 collection of stories known as the Tales of Count Lucanor, written by Juan Manuel, Prince of Vienna. It's a collection of stories often retold from other sources, including Arabic folk tales and Aesop's fables. Similar to the latter, each story comes with a moral to be drawn at the end of the tale. One of these is entitled, What Happened Between a Deacon from Santiago and Don Ian, the Grand Master of Toledo? The story aims to teach a lesson about ingratitude, but what matters for our purpose is the deacon's visit to Toledo to seek out a famous necromancer, and in particular, the repetition of the subterranean theme. After the author describes the introductions, he mentions that the deacon and magician In this magic chamber, the deacon experiences a vision showing him how his scheme for social climbing is bound to fail. But the vision of defeat experienced by the deacon pales in significance to that of another dire omen revealed in another secret chamber in Toledo. Not a cave this time, but in a padlocked treasure chamber. While there's no magician attached here to this prophecy, there is, in a later iteration at least, an artifact belonging to King Solomon, a progenitor of Western magic. It's also uh, the earliest story we'll discuss, one first presented by the Moorish writer Ibn Habib in a history of Andalusia written in the early 9th century. As such, it would influence later Toledan tales of underground chambers with magical associations. The prophecy in this case tells of the defeat of the Visigoth King Roderick, Spain's last Christian ruler before the centuries of Moorish rule. Ibn Habib's tale evolved into a slightly different version told by the Persian historian Ahmad al-Razi in his reports on the kings of Andalus, and also ended up in 1001 Nights. In this story, Roderick, driven by a stubborn curiosity and against the urgent pleas of his advisors, decides to open a mysterious locked structure, described variously as a house, a tower, or an enchanted palace. The tradition associated with this building is that each ruler in turn would place an additional padlock so that by Roderick's time there were 25 or 27, but instead of doing this, he has them removed. A 17th century version of the tale by the Algerian writer Ahmad al-Makari 
describes two significant finds, a magnificent table and a mysterious urn. Within the latter is... which turned out to come true. Now, as to the other object discovered by the king, Almahare describes it as... Charles Morris, in his 1899 volume, Historical Tales, uh, one of his series, this one focusing on Spain, enumerates the various descriptions of Solomon's table that had appeared over the centuries. Arabic legends have it that the table was crafted by the jinn enslaved by Solomon, while Jews and Christians believed it came from the temple in Jerusalem, a holy object like the Ark of the Covenant or the Staff of Moses. An additional legend says that it was removed from Toledo on the eve of the Moorish invasion and hidden by the Templars in the nearby church of Santa Maria de Melque. In any case, a marvelous object with strong magical associations. Alongside this connection with Solomon, the mysterious locked structure also happens to be associated with the Greek demigod Hercules. A 1572 Spanish chronicle, for instance, one entitled Chronicle of King Don Rodrigo and the Destruction of Spain and How the Moors Won It, describes Rodrigo or Roderick's breaking open the Another text, the anonymously composed Chronicle of 1344, likewise describes Hercules passing through Spain and stopping in Toledo to build
In fact, Hercules is said to have founded the city of Toledo. This may seem a little strange at first, but the connection between Spain and Hercules is strong, so to speak. You may have heard the promontories on the European and African sides of the Strait of Gibraltar, referred to as the And Hercules himself appears, flanked by two such pillars on the modern flag of Andalusia. Other Spanish cities, including Sevilla, Cadiz, and Barcelona, have also claimed him as their founder. But only in Toledo is an association between the Greek demigod and magic present. It's presumed, as the city's first ruler, Hercules, fearing an invasion from North Africa, magically restrained the enemy by sealing an image of them inside the urn raided by Roderick. And it seems that from this inference, a legend of a Toledan school of magic was born. Pedro Salazar de Mendoza's 1625 biography of his great-great-grandfather, the Cardinal Don Pedro Mendoza, writes that in Toledo, Hercules... By 1549, the location of Hercules' mysterious quarters is assigned by the historian Blas Ortiz in his description of the Supreme Temple of Toledo to a known site, describing it as... The church was originally a Visigoth structure built over a Roman site, and it's believed what's referred to as... The cave was actually an underground cistern built by the Romans. The church itself came down in 1841, but the small subterranean space lined by ancient columns has recently been restored and is open to visitors. But there are no magic lessons, unfortunately. It seems that rumors and legends about this space really began to roil up in the 16th and 17th century, so much so that in 1546, Cardinal Juan Martínez Siliceo was said to have organized an expedition to investigate, or more to the point, to quell the wild rumors in circulation. In Pedro Salazar de Mendoza's previously mentioned work from 1625, the subterranean space he describes appears to extend far beyond any Roman cistern.
Over the centuries, stories like this, which could have been fairly plausible accounts of an expedition into subterranean Roman ruins, were generously embroidered. Solomon's table shows up amid a horde of fabulous treasures. There are doors with a multiplicity of locks, of course, as encountered by Roderick. The bronze statues become supernaturally animated, as do uh, figures of Hercules and uh, talking bronze heads. There are eventually magic mirrors, magic books, imps in bottles, and the heads of long-dead moors preserved in bottles. While all these stories were swirling around in Toledo, similar tales began to be told of Salamanca. The earliest of these is found in a French history of the city of Troy, written in 1464 by Raoul Lefebvre. Oddly, it transfers the figure of Hercules, who otherwise isn't associated with Salamanca, to that city. The demigod is supposed to have excavated a space to be used as a school, a place where he could share a knowledge of things both seen and unseen. But... Students could then direct their questions to this magical figure, which responded and taught the students just as Hercules had done in person. The site of this secretive subterranean school is again strangely said to be associated with a Christian site, the Church of St. Cyprian or San Cipriano. At least this is the place most often suggested as the school's location. The Jesuit Martin del Rio, associated with the area of the Netherlands and ruled by the Spanish, had attended university in Salamanca and, around 1600, remarked upon the location in one of the six volumes of his series, Magical Investigations, calling it a nefarious gymnasium. Gymnasium here used in the old Dutch or German sense, meaning a secondary school. He had the spot pointed out to him in his university days and described it as a very deep vault. Further remarking that the extremely Catholic Queen Isabella, who'd learned of the secret school, had ordered it to be blocked up with cement and stones. Which, if true, would have had to happen before her death in 1504. And then at an unknown point later in that century, the above-ground structure fell into ruin or was demolished or somehow destroyed, leaving only this somewhat subterranean space, which is often identified as the church's crypt, though it's a bit of a misnomer as it was clearly not a burial site. It was actually used as a sacristy, that is a place to store and prepare properties and vestments used in the mass. And I say somewhat subterranean, as the room would appear to be at street level from one side, but as the church was built into a hillside, it would have been accessed from above, from the other side, by descending stairs, making it seem more like a vault or crypt. Today, the wall which enhanced that illusion has fallen away, and the room is, in fact, open to the street. Not quite what you'd expect. With time, the stories told about the sort of magic taught in the school changed. 
no longer based in ancient classical, Jewish, or Arabic sources. Salamanca's later stories were told in an era where magic had become associated with Christianity's devil. This period corresponds with the beginning of the witch trials and the Inquisition, which coincidentally or not, was centered in Castile, the region in which both Salamanca and Toledo are to be found. The teacher in this school is now a diabolical figure, perhaps a scholar of the university who's delved into the forbidden arts, aided by the devil, or perhaps the devil himself, or one of his demons, often Asmodeus, a favorite figure in Spanish lore. Occasionally, it's a demon presenting himself in the form of a sacristan, that is, the attendant responsible for the properties of the sacristy. The sacristan would usually be a young man who might also be a student of the university. Francisco de Torreblanca, in his 1678 volume, On Magic, gives this figure a name, Clemente Potosi, one that uh, continued to circulate in later accounts. And this character is given a curious enlightenment spin around 1750 by the writer Benito Fejo y Montenegro in his erudite and curious letters in which he skeptically reimagines the sacristan not as in league with the devil, but as a trickster passing off a bit of stage magic as supernatural in order to earn a few coins from young people he entertains in the sacristy. Well, it's impossible to know how seriously legends of a devilish underground school were taken by the common people. The notion clearly fascinated writers and dramatists of the era. It was a favorite theatrical subject during the golden age of Spanish literature, with nearly a dozen plays composed upon the topic, many treating it comedically. Miguel Cervantes of Don Quixote fame, for instance, has a character cynically spin tales of the magic school as a way of extracting himself from a difficult situation in a one-act comedy called The Cave of Salamanca. A favorite character in the Salamanca plays is the Marques de Vienna. He's based on an actual 15th century nobleman, Enrique de Vienna or Enrique of Aragon, a theologian and scholar of wide-ranging interests who became associated with sorcery in the public mind. His the case is typical of those mentioned at the start of the show, as it was not only his writings on astrology and alchemy that raised suspicion, but even his concern with mathematics. A 1425 treatise on the evil eye played a particularly large role in all this, and Upon his death, the king ordered Vienna's library search for questionable material, and many books ended up in a public bonfire, which strengthened this nefarious reputation. Vienna appears, for instance, as the protagonist of a 1645 comedy by Francisco de Rojas Soria called What the Marques de Vienna Wanted to See. Set in Salamanca, of course, it portrays Vienna as a carefree student interested chiefly in chasing girls and magic. The latter he learns in the famous cave from a devilish magician by the name of Fileno. Spying on girls and assessing his chances with them is facilitated by a magic mirror owned by Fileno. 
Already in 1628, the legend had made its way to the Americas, as evidenced by Mexican playwright Juan Ruiz de Alecón's comedy The Cave of Salamanca, in which Viena figures as a student magician under the instruction of a French necromancer named Enrico. As with Zoria's play, in which Fileno causes all the stage scenery to fly away at one point, Alarcon inserts magic scenes, which must have provided some entertaining onstage moments. There is a uh, talking bronze head, a woman transformed into a lion, and a man into a bronze statue, a food turns to coal, and there's a severed head of an executed prisoner, which briefly speaks before bursting into flames. One of the motifs found in Alacon's play and many other Salamanca stories involves the students of the magic school being admitted into the cave in groups of seven, not all of whom emerge again. The devil, after all, must receive some sort of payment for his instruction, which is often provided in the form of the soul of one of the seven chosen by lot among the students. This sacrifice is often said to take place after a seven-year period of study. And, uh, yes, I'm aware of a similar legend that was current in Transylvania when Bram Stoker was writing Dracula, but that's for another show. But, uh... Back to Salamanca, there's uh, also a less dramatic version of this contract with the students, which has the diabolical magician simply imprisoning one of their number as a sort of ransom until payment is rendered by the other students. In Alacon's uh, comedy, Vienna is the prisoner, detained in a large urn, or at least until he escapes, after which the magician demands not financial reimbursement, but Vienna's soul. He escapes again, however, body and soul, outwitting the devil who manages only to seize his shadow. Now, there is uh, one other aspect of the Salamanca legend that's intrigued me, but on which I've actually not found much commentary. The church under which the school is supposed to be found, if you'll recall, was dedicated to St. Cyprian, which strikes me as significant and I think will be of interest. Cyprian of Antioch, sometimes called Cyprian the Magician, has strong occult associations throughout the Catholic world, but especially in Spanish and Portuguese-speaking regions. Before Cyprian came to Christianity, this third-century saint is supposed to have been a black magician. Butler's Lives of the Saints, the classic 18th century collection of hagiographies, describes Cyprian before his conversion, leaving his home in Asia Minor and traveling to Athens, Mount Olympus in Macedonia, Argos, Phrygia, Memphis in Egypt, Chaldea, and Indus, places at that time famous for superstition and magic.
St. Cyprian is almost always mentioned alongside St. Justina, the pious Christian responsible for him turning from his wicked ways. Cyprian first encounters her when he's recruited to offer magical assistance to a young pagan nobleman whose amorous interest in Justina has been rebuffed. However, Cyprian soon finds himself no less smitten with the woman. Aided by her faith, however, Justina manages to resist all the magician's most powerful spells, and Cyprian, in his defeat, recognizes Christ as the higher power. After submitting himself to the church, she becomes a deacon, priest, and finally a bishop, while Justina founds a convent, and both are eventually decapitated in the persecution of Diocletian. While this connection between the Saints' Occult Association and the Spanish school isn't played on as often as one would expect, it does occur. In 1733, the author Francisco Botello de Marias y Vasconcello created his own strange and often satirical version of the tale in his History of the Caves of Salamanca. It's an expansive six-volume story in which he dubs the site of the school... Cyprian himself figures into the tale in his pre-conversion mode as a master magician of the cave. The Marquise de Viena and King Roderick are also in there, too, as is the seven-student, seven-year, one-soul payment motif. Also thrown in is another popular character borrowed from a 15th-century tale set in Salamanca, Mother Celestina. She first appears in a 1499 novel by Fernando de Rojas, the tragicomedy of Callisto and Melibea, usually just called La Celestina after its most popular character. While in the novel by de Rojas, uh, Celestina is presented as a procurer famous for her love potions, in uh, History of the Cave, she becomes a sort of monstrous sibyl equipped with uh, griffin's claws and she serves as a guide to a magical underworld filled with pleasure palaces and gardens. And the novel spans centuries into the days after the entrance to the cave has been sealed by Queen Isabella, though we hear of a chicken slipping through a crack left open and later emerging. It's an odd book. Now, as it happens, St. Cyprian's story more or less is mirrored by a saint of Portugal, or actually a blessed, not technically a saint, that is Gaios or Giles of Santarém. In a nutshell, this version has Giles traveling to Paris to study medicine against the wishes of his parents who'd hoped to send him to a Dominican monastery. En route, he's diverted by a friendly stranger, that is the devil, who invites him to Toledo and there is seduced into the world of magic, eventually signing a blood contract entitling the Dark One to his soul after seven years. However, through some odd intervention of a gigantic specter of a knight, the contract is annulled and Giles comes to Christ, later becoming the Dominican his parents had wanted him to be. I um, mentioned Giles, 
we'll just call him St. Giles because he is a folk saint, if not Vatican-approved. Uh, he appears in a 1612 play, The Devil's Slave, by Spanish writer Antonio Mira de Amezcua. It's a comedy belonging to the peculiar Spanish genre known as Comedia de Santos, or Comedy of Saints. While you may not immediately associate saints of comedy, this was a popular genre in 17th and 18th century Spain, focusing less on the uh, post-conversion character than the wacky hijinks of the sinner and uh, the associated miracles which provided entertaining stage effects. The devil's slave has the pre-conversion Giles hired to magically procure a woman for a rejected suitor, and then like Cyprian, Giles himself falls in love with the woman. Then, what you'd expect, sinful hilarity ensues, Giles turns from evil, and the devil disappears in a puff of smoke. The uh, play is mostly known for inspiring the more famous dramatist Pedro Calderón de la Barca to create his 1637 play, a drama, not a comedy this time, The Wonder-Working Magician. In this case, it is Cyprian who studies magic in a cave with the devil, his ultimate goal being to obtain the love of Justina, of course. The Lord, however, protects Justina from the devil's machinations, and all Satan is able to summon is a ghost resembling Justina. When Cyprian finally embraces her, he finds he is holding a skeleton, inspiring him to reject the devil and turn to Christ. I uh, did mention at the top of this show that we'd be returning to Latin America before things are through, which they almost are. Latin America is one of the places where the idea of a secret system of magic, once practiced by St. Cyprian, does hold sway. Naturally, this tradition was inherited from Spain and Portugal, so we'll be taking a look at how that developed there. Before doing so, however, I should mention that uh, one occasionally also finds references to Cyprian magic in Italian, French, and German culture, and that magic books attributed to Cyprian, also called black books, play a role in Scandinavian culture, one almost as important as uh, that on the Iberian Peninsula. Behind all this, of course, is the idea that before his conversion, Cyprian would have passed on his magical knowledge to students who preserved it, or that he wrote it down himself, and that this book or copies of it somehow survived his conversion. Even today, Cyprian magic books, like other magic books, are sometimes said to supernaturally resist efforts by their owners to discard or destroy them, much like the modern stories about Ouija boards that can't be burned. So all that could feed into the folklore regarding the survival of Cyprian's teachings. However, the content of the books purported to have been written by Cyprian hardly uh, represents a unique and specific set of teachings. They're usually compilations of elements from other popular magic books, including the Grand Grimoire, the Key of Solomon, or the 6th and 7th Book of Moses, although some do include material specific to Spain and Portugal, for instance, uh, magical means by which buried treasures left by the retreating Moors may be located and retrieved. The best known of these Cyprian books, which is supposed to contain magic both black and white, would be 
the great book of San Cyprian, subtitled The Sorcerer's Treasure. There is also a volume called the Cyprianio, the Little Cyprian, preferred for white magic and used by folk healers and even village priests in areas where Catholicism and folk magic are still gently intertwined. The aid of St. Cyprian is also sought out by traditional Catholics. He is the patron of Christians who'd once dabbled in the occult and those fearing attacks through witchcraft direct prayers to him on the uh, takes one to know one principle. Books of purported Cyprian magic generally only began to circulate widely around the end of the 18th century, though I've seen it suggested that the sorcerer's treasure was in print in the 16th. Less plausible is the commonly given compiler of these volumes, one Jonas Suforino from Sulphur Brimstone, who was allegedly a German monk who said to have uh, completed the book in the year 1001 CE in a monastery on Mount Brocken, uh, Germany's preferred meeting place for witches. Well, that's not exactly likely. A Cyprian volume is mentioned in an 1841 French trial, uh, one with the title in Latin, Cyprian Magic Before Conversion, and it's recorded as originally appearing in 1464 in the city of Salamanca, of course. And perhaps the most reliable evidence for the earlier existence of Cyprian magic books is a reference in the records of an Inquisition tribunal to a book of Cyprian magic said to have been used by a treasure hunter, one Juan de Toledo, who was charged with witchcraft in 1610. Now, as for Latin America... Segura com fé na mão de Cipriano Pra colher flores ou espinhos retirar What you're hearing is the sound of Brazilian rites dedicated to a form of St. Cyprian the Magician, which evolved out of the syncretic religions of that country, those combining West and Central African practices and beliefs with those of Europe, namely uh, those of Catholicism, folk magic, and 19th century spiritism, a sort of uh, reincarnation-oriented take on spiritualism. The term macumba was originally used to describe this fusion, but more recently that's been used more exclusively for European elements, while umbanda and more recently kimbanda have been differentiated as uh, the separate religions preserving more African elements. And it's in uh, this strain that St. Cyprian has uh, percolated down here, emerging back up as Pai Cipriano, uh, Papa Cyprian of the Souls, or uh, Sorpiano de Pretos Veos, pardon my Portuguese, that is St. Cyprian of the Old Blacks, or an embodiment of the departed African ancestors. It's a long, strange trip for a third-century magician from Asia Minor. And in case all of this talk of sorcery has left you a bit uneasy, I'm going to mix in and close out with a purpose-made protective prayer from the YouTube channel, Oraciones a Santos. This one, entitled in Spanish, translates as a very strong prayer to St. Cyprian to reverse damage hexes, curses, 
and witchcraft. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show. And if you are, we'd appreciate it if you would leave us a review, as did these helpful souls, Fleister55 and Drea Perk Vader. Or even better, join us on Patreon as a supporter. Among the many reward tiers available, a monthly pledge of $2 provides you immediate access to hundreds of posts on our show blog, in which I share curious tidbits from history, folklore, and films, all related to our general subject matter or the uh, recent episode. Donating a mere $4 or more monthly brings you an extra episode every month, somewhat shorter than the public shows, but still lavishly and melodramatically soundscaped. Other rewards include downloads of those uh, show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Crumpus book, various t-shirt and mug options, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Pledges start at $1 a month and can be cancelled at any time. And uh, here are some of those heroes who have recently signed up and to whom we are very grateful. Thank yous to Joel Dinosaur, John Bisco, George Prescott, Jack Saxtetter, Neil Shaw, Edward Hanke, and Jen Hyden. Boat and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects in writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.